I cannot wear this. I can take this off. Is that better? This, it just, lower? Like that? Is that better? Yeah. Ah, okay. I can, I can, I can, it just was, it was really in my ears. Well, good morning to you all. It's, uh, my name is Tony Bernhard. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a friend of Sylvia's. And I show up here occasionally when she's off like she is today partying in New York. Um, and I really enjoy coming uh, to Spirit Rock because it's, my gosh, I've been coming here for well over 20 years. Now it's a little too soft. Okay, we'll make it creep up. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Yes. Oh, so you, you want me to? Okay, we're back. No, please don't apologize. This is fine. Oh, actually. Okay. Well, I'm going to start by talking about a new uh, website that I found that's particularly entertaining. It's called uh, FakeBuddhaQuotes.com. <laughs> Any of you found it? Yeah. Oh, it's just great. Um, what what they they put up pictures and examples that they find around of quotes that are attributed to the Buddha that are not. And so I thought I'd share a couple of them to start. This is uh, fake Buddha quote number one. Happiness is not having a lot. Happiness is giving a lot. The Buddha. And then they put his dates. Of course, the dates are controversial too, but... So that's a, a fake Buddha quote. How about this one? Holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's not that the quotes aren't, you know, but they're just not the Buddha. (laughs) This one is particularly interesting because on the site, it's presented with the Buddha's face, and it says, you get there by realizing you are already there. (laughs) But then if you read, so you think it's sort of the Buddha, but if you read the fine print, it's Eckhart Tolle, and but you know, if it's like this, somebody's going to quote that as as the Buddha, and so the Buddha's teachings get sort of mixed in with other stuff. You know, I th- I think of the the Dharma that comes to us today as sort of the end of a twenty five hundred year game of telephone. <laughs> and if you play telephone, I got a chance to play telephone with my granddaughter. She's 12, recently we, we were sitting at a, a, a table in a restaurant and all the parents were on one end and all the kids were on the other. And there were four of them, they were playing telephone. It was just great. They couldn't get anything right from one end to the other. And of course, I wasn't helping. I, I always gave them tongue twisters. So it was hard. To, a box of biscuits, a box of mixed biscuits, and a biscuit mixer. And they, <laughs> and they of course, 
had trouble pronouncing it following. It was just a lot of fun. But at the end, what you get is not what started. And so what comes to us is, um, as the Dharma, is mixed in with a lot of static. Uh, a lot of, you know, some of the, the, um, this is a, this is a, uh, something that appeared in the uh, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies Insight Journal recently. There are core concepts in the Pali Canon still often buried under mistaken translation, missing vital cultural contexts, obscured by the scholastic commentators of later interpreters who likely did not practice meditation themselves, and by modern interpreters whose understanding relies on these sources rather than on the original texts. So we're, we're sort of in that spot. The tradition comes to us uh, cloaked in a lot of forms, and we're left with, well, what we've got. It's still pretty powerful. The Buddha anticipated this, uh, and he talked about it. There's a, a sutta in the... Uh, the Samyutta Nikaya that I really enjoy. It's called The Peg, and you can Google it if you... It's on the Access to Insight website. You guys know about that one, I, I assume. Uh, oh, access to insight.org uh, is a huge resource of materials uh, assembled, I assume, largely by Tanjeff, uh, who's a translator, primary translator, and provides translations of huge hunks of the the uh, uh, the canon um, at no charge of course um, except that he's got some unusual translations of some words but it's a great resource I recommend it so this is from his his this is his translation of the of the ani sutta the peg staying a savati monks there once was a time when Dashara Dasharahas had a large drum called summer, summoner. Whenever summoner was split, they inserted another peg into it. So the wood cracked and they'd put a little, and it would vibrate, so they'd shove a little peg into it to keep it from vibrating. Until the time when summoner's original wooden body had disappeared and only a conglomeration of pegs remained. And the, the story the story, the commentaries note that this drum could, was supposed to have been heard for 12 leagues and after all the pegs were in it, it couldn't be heard even in the next room. It just went thud. In the same way, and this, this is quoting from the Buddha, in the same way, in the course of the future, there will be monks who won't listen when discourses that are words of the Tathagata. That's the word he used to refer to himself. When, they, when the words of the Tathagata, deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, connected with emptiness, are being recited, they won't lend ear, won't set their hearts on knowing them, won't regard these teachings as worth grasping or mastering, but they will listen when discourses that are literary works, the works of poets, elegant in sound, elegant in rhetoric, the work of outsiders, words of disciples, are recited. They will lend ear and set their hearts on knowing them. They will regard these teachings as worth grasping and mastering. 
In this way, the disappearance of the discourses that are the words of the Tathagata, deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, connected with emptiness, will come about. Thus you should train yourself. We will listen when discourses that are the words of the Tathagata, deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, connected with emptiness, are being recited. We will lend ear, we'll set our hearts on knowing them, will regard these teachings as worth grasping and mastering. That's how you should train yourself. So the Buddha anticipated fake Buddha quotes. <laughs> Amazing, huh? But actually, you know, it, it makes sense. At the time, um, you know, the people who, were, who became his, his uh, followers were people who came from the Brahminical tradition, and brought their sensibilities to the understanding uh, that that the Buddha was was pointing at, um, and over time, this kind of has crept in as static uh, into the into the to the Pali Canon itself, into the texts that are treated as the words of the Buddha. Let me read this. This is from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. Number 123, he says, this is a, this, I have heard and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips. As soon as the Bodhisattva was born, he stood firmly with his feet on the ground. Then he took seven steps facing north, and with a white parasol held over him, he surveyed each quarter and uttered the words of the leader of the herd, quote, I am the highest in the world. I am the best in the world. I am the foremost in the world. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being for me. This I remember as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Blessed One. What do you think? Not so much? It's in the, it's in the canon. Here's, a, here's a, another, another passage from the Majjhima, Majjhima 91. It's uh, someone defending the Buddha. He does possess the 32 marks of a great man. Master Gautama sets his foot down squarely. This is the mark of a great man. On the soles of his feet there are wheels with a thousand spokes and ribs and hubs all complete. He has projecting heels. Now, I, I'd like, I like to go for the imagination here. <laughs> he has long fingers and toes. His hands and feet are soft and tender. He has netted hands and feet. Like a duck, I guess. His feet are arched. He has legs like an antelope's. He doesn't say whether it's the front legs or the back legs. <laughs> this is, you know. When he stands without stooping, the palms of both his hands touch and rub against his knees. His male organ is enclosed in a sheath. So like a dog or a horse, I guess. He is the color of gold. His skin has a... There are 30, one of them, I think, is he wears a... A polka dot bow tie. <laughs> no. no, 
Uh, but you'll buy. <laughs> so what? What do we think of this? What do we make of that? You know, these are in the these are in the scriptures. And I remember being at a at a um, at a class with a, a senior monastic who was recounting the death of the Buddha and reading from the <clears throat> from the Diganakaya. And the Buddha closed his eyes after his final words. He closed his eyes and he sets his mind into concentration and he goes up through the jhanas to the eighth jhana and then back down to the first jhana and then he goes back to the fourth jhana and then he dies. And I I raised my hand and I asked wonderingly how we might know this. And the answer was that Anuruddha could read minds. Anuruddha was the Buddhist cousin. So there are some. I mean, what, what do we? How do we hold that kind of stuff? Those, that material. In the that's that's in the scriptures that come to us, and in the tradition, that comes to us. How do we? How do we choose? Because, we are picking and choosing already. And there's often some confusion about, you know, just what's, how do we hold some of this stuff and what's, what do we believe, what do we not believe, multiple lifetimes, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for a while and it seems to me that, um, there are a couple of standards which uh, have been useful to me in, in making these kinds of distinctions. Uh, one, one, um, the the kind of standard that that those of us who have been cultured in Western scientism tend to uh, go with are things that are you know testable in our own experience. You know, I I think of I mean, we you know uh, the Buddha addresses that very specifically. He talks to the Kalamas. You, and you've all heard this one before, but it's worth it's worth repeating. You know how should why should we believe any of this stuff? And the Buddha says it's fitting to be perplexed, um, to be in doubt because this is a perplexing matter. He says, do not go by oral tradition by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reasons, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of the speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our te- this ascetic is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves such things are unwholesome, such things are blamable, such things are censured by the wise, such things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. But when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things if undertaken in practice, lead to the welfare and happiness, you should engage in them. Yeah? But isn't saying 
are censured by the wise, then don't believe them. Isn't that sort of listening to somebody else? Like he's saying, to, you know, basically you shouldn't listen to anybody else, right? Which then part of it is what's... He's not saying don't listen to it, but he's, he's saying just don't go, you know, don't rely on this. Except what's censured by the wise and what's not... We would know, he's suggesting we would know in our hearts already that this is not, we're just... When you know for yourself, when you know for yourself, you know, sort of reminds me of that Richard Pryor story, you know, he, he's, his, his wife comes in on him, he's in bed with some other woman and he jumps up and he says, that's not what you see, it's, don't believe this, you're not seeing this, and he says, and, and then, you know, who are you gonna believe, me or your lying eyes? <laughs> So there's this kind of empiricism. There's kind of, uh, we sort of want to be able to test for ourselves rather than just believing Richard. <laughs> no. um, and that doesn't just mean we have to have direct concrete experience. Have any of you been to Alice Springs? Ah. So you've been there, so you know it's there. But the rest of us, we sort of trust it's there because we trust the map makers and we have an understanding of what's involved in map making. And we think there are black holes out there. And even though I didn't get much past, you know, for the first semester calculus, I sort of understand what math is doing and I have a sense of what all those astrophysicists are doing and there's lots of peer checking and and uh, peer review and you know it's probably empirically based <clears throat> the opposite would be something metaphysical something that talks about things that we can't have direct experience about. So, um, some, an example of that might be the notion, everything happens for a reason. Uh-huh. Maybe it does, but that's not something that we could test. That's not something, that's just a, a matter of belief. God is blue. Or, if it's a question, I guess it, it depends on whether it's asked in Kansas or in California. But these are things that we can't, that we can't, um, subject to any kind of experiential test. Even in the phenomenology of our own experience, just, just our own experience, um, there are, uh, plenty of examples of things that have seeped into the the tradition that are metaphysical. The Buddha said, you know, speculative views, metaphysical views, serve primarily to instigate contention and dispute. You know, God is blue, God is red. You know, um, and. And, and remarkably, you know, the Buddha, in, in the beginning of the Honeyball Sutta, 
when the Buddha is sitting in the forest and his cousin comes, Dandapandi shows up, and Dandapandi is not a fan of the Buddhas, and he sort of says with a little sneer, "What? what's the holy man teaching these days? And the Buddha said, I teach a dharma that doesn't contend with anyone. It's a pretty high bar. But it's the speculative views, the assertion of speculative views, that become the basis for contention and dispute. One of the, you know, the, the, the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta shows up in a lot of Dharma circles, the, the notion of oneness, um, the, 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 the ground of being, the, the spirit that we're all one kind of stuff, which is again not out of the Buddha Dharma and is in, a, in effect speculative. Now the Buddha, this is um, from the Samyutta Nikaya, um, is a very clever device. You can have the whole Samyutta Nikaya, the all Majjhima Nikaya, all, you know. <laughs> all in something this big. That's Savati. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the all. And what bhikkhus is the all? The eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the all. If anyone should speak thus... Having rejected all, I shall make known another all. If he were questioned, he would not be able to reply, and further, he would meet with vexation. For what reason? Because, because that would not be within his domain. So the all, the idea of oneness, the ground of being, what Stephen Batchelor calls God and his surrogates, we're not subject matter for the Buddha at the time. It shows this shows up specific or particularly uh, in an interesting way with when we talk about karma. And I think in a in a way karma is a is a really excellent place to take a look at the way in which these this kind of reliance on um, speculative views uh, plays out. It's, you know, karma is taught almost as a form of what you reap, what you you reap, what you sow. Pretty much, you know, it's the the standard the standard view. Um, Karma, action, and and uh, uh, result. In in a way, it's very similar. It, it's very similar to uh, intelligent design. You know, there's there's not really a way to to test it, but it's it's presented as sort of uh, an impersonal law of the cosmos, sort of like the law of gravity instead of as the law of a supreme sentient being who's, you know, 
you know, managing the payoff for whether you're good or bad. It's, you know, sort of like Santa Claus. <laughs> it's making a list and checking it twice. Um, the, the, the view of intelligent design presents um, karma, or the, 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 the view of intelligent design pr- presents the creation of all this stuff in terms of a, sp- a metaphysical uh, creator. Buddha was not interested in talking about metaphysical creators. And karma presents itself, like I say, as a an impersonal law. And we're sort of cultured to think of things like the law of gravity as impersonal. But the law of gravity is measurable and testable. It's not really possible to do that with something like karma. I mean, here's um, a section from the uh, Anguttara Nikaya. The Buddha said, there's a case where a trifling deed done by a certain individual takes him to hell. There's also the case where the very same sort of trifling deed done by another individual is experienced in the here and now and for the most part barely appears for a moment. There is the case where a certain individual is undeveloped in contemplating the body, undeveloped in virtue, undeveloped in mind, undeveloped in discernment, restricted, small-hearted, dwelling with suffering. A trifling deed by this sort of individual takes him to hell. Then there's the case of the developed individual. The same action barely appears for a moment. So there's no way to... How, how do you measure... How can you test that? This is not something that... I mean, it's a, it's a matter of faith. You believe it or you don't. And there's nothing... I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that kind of faith, just to be able to distinguish between the two, the two kinds of, of notions. And the, and the notion of karma as, as um, the standard notion, Bhikkhu Bodhi has a, has a, a, a statement where he, he presents the understanding of the tradition. It talks about the capacity of our actions to bring forth their results through a sequence of many lives. That is, the right view of karma and its fruits means an understanding, at least in principle, of how karma generates rebirth linking. Karma is a force that generates repeated existence in the round of birth and death. So it's tied into multiple lifetimes. And how do we hold that? And these are these are not things that are within our experience, I don't think, unless anybody, you know, usually I ask if people have memories of their past lives. I remember being a child, <laughs> a student, you know, I remember being an employee, an employer, a, 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 I've got past lives, <laughs> but beyond that. But this notion, um, this metaphysical notion is, you know, it's, it's, it floats around in Dharma circles. I remember being at another, uh, another, 
day long with a, a monastic teacher who was talking about karma and made the statement that if you were standing on the beach in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit, <clears throat> it was the result of past actions. Um, and there's 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 some places in there's even there's an entire sutta in the uh, Majjhima which strikes me as a little bit like that that kind of fundamentalist understanding. Uh, you know, uh, here, student, some man or woman kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence merciless to living beings because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death he reappears in a state of deprivation in an unhappy destination in perdition even in hell but if on the dissolution of the body after death he does not reappear in a state of deprivation in an unhappy destination in perdition in hell but instead comes back to the human state then wherever he is reborn he is short-lived Sort of not testable like Alice Springs or black holes or, but, or or here, students, some man or woman is of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, becomes angry and hostile and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is born. He is ugly. <laughs> I think they left out the one about, you know, if you if you manage to get through a lifetime without any parking tickets, then in your next incarnation you you have good parking karma. <laughs> that's that's where good parking karma comes from. <laughs> Past action. There's a there's a real question about whether whether that's really the kind of meaning that the that the Buddha had when he was talking about karma. But karma, the notion of karma, <clears throat> in this kind of notion, arose, uh, you know, during the Buddha's time. The word comes from the Sanskrit word karman, which which is the word that described the ritual practice of the Brahmins at the time. So the Brahmins were in charge of keeping the, these were the, the, the priest class, and they were responsible for maintaining uh, the harmony of the universe and, and in mediating between people and the gods. So if you wanted your... Uh, crops to grow, your animals to be fertile, if you wanted a child or whatever, you would go to the Brahmins and they would perform a ritual of some sort. It would include chanting and incense and maybe walking around an altar or something. Um, And they became very uh, specialized. There were Brahmins who were specialized in the pronunciation of mantras, and those who are specialized in uh, the pitch at which the mantra should be pronounced, and for the duration, and 
Um, and of course, if, if, you know, you needed rain and you, they did the ritual and you got rain, good karma. And if it didn't, well, somebody made a mistake. You know, they said it too loud or too soft or too fast or whatever. And we had to check with the, uh, because this wasn't something that was testable either. But the, the word was karma. Karma. The Buddha, well, the Buddha was very clever, and he was also, um, sometimes he was a little smart. And what he would do, he would take, often he would take the words that the Brahmins used, that were used in the common culture, and flip the meaning. So, for example, the word that... Um, in the in the Brahmin temples, there were three fires that had to be kept going continually. There was the fire of creation, and in households, there was a fire that represented the um, individual life of the person. Um, and they had to be these had to be fueled constantly. And the word that was the word that was used to describe this process of keeping the fires alive was upadana. <clears throat> if you're familiar with with uh, the Pali uh, language as it applies to to the Buddhist teachings, Upadana is the you know, is the grasping. It's what it's the feeding the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So he would he would say, yeah, karma. It's it's important, but it's it doesn't have to do with the behavioral performance. It has to do with intention. So he, he flipped the meaning. It's like saying, you know, black is white for those people. Here's from the Sivaka Sutta in the, uh, in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. See, someone's asking the Buddha, he said, Master Gautama, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, all that is caused by what was done in the past. What does Master Gautama say about this? Some feelings, Sivaka, he said, arise here originating from bile disorders. That some feelings arise here originating from bile disorders, one can know for oneself. And that's considered to be true in the world. Now, when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine and view as this, whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or unpleasant, uh, or neither, all that is caused by what is done in the past, they overshoot what one knows for oneself. And they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore, I say that this is wrong on the part of those ascetics and Brahmins. Some feelings, Sivaka, arise here originating from phlegm disorders. Some originating from wind disorders. So we know there's some digestive things going on here. (laughs) Some arising from an imbalance of the three. Some produced by change of climate some produced by careless behavior. Some feelings 
caused by assault, and some produced as the result of karma. So it's one of a set of eight that he lists. That some feelings arise here produced as the result of karma one can know for oneself, and that is considered to be true. Now, when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine as this, whatever experiences, etc., they, they go beyond what they can know. And we wind up in speculative views. <clears throat> but the Buddha, you know, you, it's possible to salvage karma. It's not just woo-woo kind of you know, supernatural or intelligent embedded design. Because he said it's it's um, it's intention. Intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one does karma by way of body, speech, and mind. So action, which is the the usual translation of karma is the result of an intention, and his focus is on intention. Here's what he says. This is, this is from uh, Majjama 19. He says, bhikkhus, it's his word for monks, bhikkhus, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, he's not thinking of thoughts of renunciation. He's abandoning them to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then his mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If he frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, he has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty, non-ill will in order to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then his mind inclines in that direction. So, he's suggesting that what we are creating are habits and memories. You want to know what your karma is? When you close your eyes, it's what comes up in your mind. When you sit to meditate, it's your recollection. Um... It was a 60 Minutes show some, maybe about a year ago, where some scientist at Irvine had uh, collected a bunch of people who were particularly able to recall everything that had occurred to them. Didn't you see that? It was just stunning. I mean, they had there was a collection of about seven or eight of them, and one of these guys, they had, if they, if they say, what did you have for lunch on April 14th, 1972? They, the woman would go, ah, well, it was the salmon salad, and I had it at this, and I'm with my girlfriend, but I'm not going to tell you what we were talking about, and she giggled. <laughs> there was a guy who was describing a football game that he'd seen on television in 1976, do you remember? And, he, and they were showing the clip of the TV while he's talking. He's in a room. There's no TV there. And he's just describing what we're seeing on the... 
the clip on the screen. You know, just amazing ability to to retain. And of course, they're trying to find out what this is about. Interestingly, only one of them had a spouse. Um, <laughs> one one of the women said it was difficult to always be right. <laughs> well, when Leslie Stahl asked one of the women, and a woman, a violinist named Louise Owen, uh, whether this ability was a blessing or a curse, she said, because I know I'm going to remember everything I do, I lead my life in such a way that I will not have regrets. That's, that's the karma that we, that we, it's our memories and our habits the things we do routinely. I do some. I do some work regularly at Folsom Prison, and the and the men in there are concerned about karma. And they come to the Buddhist services looking. They want to talk about forgiveness, and I'm saying, well, that's over in the Christian <laughs> sessions, you know. Um, you know, for the Dharma, all you can do is completely embrace what you've done, and you can vow never again, no matter what, I'll die before. That's the best. And to start from there, to start from the present. So karma becomes what we turn ourselves into, not what happens to us. Although, if you call somebody a jerk, they may sock you. And that's, you know, Buddha says some things happen, (laughs) you know, as a result of karma, as a result of intention. But we live with our intentions, with the result of our intentions. And we suffer memories, you know, of things we've done where, you know, there's still memories that come up for me that are, that I cringe over, just physically cringe over. Can't believe I did that or said that. And we've all been there. We've all got those. That's our karma. It's not whether the... the, In my view, as I understand it, not depending on metaphysical explanations. You know, we can... can, um, take the same principles and apply them to the practice of the precepts, for example. Precepts are often presented very much like commandments, rules to follow. No false speech. Now, I remember if, if uh, I remember in another session with yet another. A monastic teacher raising the question if the Nazis knock on the door and ask, is Anne Frank here? Uh, <laughs> his response was, you have to finesse the question. I guess you say something like, what do you mean by is? <laughs> Didn't work for Bill Clinton. 
Now, the precepts, in in my view, are not so much rules to abide by. In that formula, if you're good, you get another reincarnation, which will be better and move you closer towards nibbana, or towards liberation, or whatever. That somehow being good is, you know, following these precepts. But the precepts seem to me to function more as tools for investigation. You know, the first precept about not killing. Well, the word panatipata, I'm not a Pali scholar, so I asked Gil, who's, Fransal, who's, who is. I said, what does that word mean? He said it means not to strike at. The first precept is about intention. It's about panatipata, it's about not striking at not harming. It, be, it leads to an inquiry about what is what is harming. You know, and how do we how do we respond to the world around us? And the precepts are sort of like flags. They're sort of, you know, when, when they you got the scuba divers, they put up special flags, scuba divers below. And the precepts are highlighting areas that are issues. And we get situations like this. There's a friend of mine who was, um, lives in New York and was a major feminist writer in the 70s and hung out in the scene with Betty Friedan and, you know, the, and, uh, she got a phone call. And I saw her last summer, so it must have, the phone call must have come in the spring. There's someone in town you have to see. And so she went to this party. And it was a um, uh, party for the Forum for Women, Law, and Development. It's an international thing. And she met this young African woman named um, Justine Bahimba. And she was in New York because she's from the Congo, but there's a price on her head. Um because rape is a really big deal in in the Congo. I mean, one army comes through the village and then the next, the other liberators come through and part of their, the rape and pillage stuff. And so she was in New York and she was um, meeting with people, about 20 people from an elite group in the city and they were talking about the situation and how endemic rape has become. And uh, at one point in the party, the hostess said, so what can we do for you? And this is the time when usually you break out the checkbooks and everybody... You know. And Justine said, well, what we really need are guns. She says, not even necessarily to use them, but just so that they know we have them. And my friend said that within 10 to 15 minutes, almost everybody was gone. 
she was there and there were a couple of women turned out from Senegal who who said we have a security agency in Senegal we can help you with her with your problem but this has been a real koan for me for quite some time and I've posed it in a number of Dharma settings do you write the check for the guns or not and it's an open question some people would and some people wouldn't and there are many reasons and the reasons are all valid for whichever way you move and in the end this is this is the way a precept works it is a focus for investigation and an investigation for your own intention for your own understanding and what we bring to the situation so it changes the nature of of the precepts it's not that being good gets you good payoff it's you know you look back in a few years would you have rather have written the check or not you can't tell how things are going to turn out we can't always tell but we can know what our intention is based on our understanding what do we bring to the present moment what habits do we bring what tendencies well you know the the um the buddha talks about the the habits of greed hatred and delusion they're not qualities they're habits they're things that we do over and over again because they're habits we can change at any time do we have a tendency or a habit of stinginess perhaps we can that's it's not a quality of ourselves none of these things are fixed they're just what we do at any moment you know in the abhidhamma there's a difference between uh lobha which is an un, which is the unwholesome uh quality of greed and alobha which is the wholesome quality of well not greed but what's interesting is that abhidhamma scholars say that lobha still arises the greed still shows up but we don't jump on we don't take it up what things do you know we, we don't have to again carry out a habit that we are conditioned to carry out what kinds of actions what kinds of thoughts about ourselves you know our understandings of our who we are what we're capable of these are just repetitive things and because they're repetitive we think they're the same we've got this platonic kind of orientation you know in in western culture you know there are what's real is what's permanent and if it comes up over and over again it must be permanent but it's just repetitive 
Um, gravity certainly comes up over and over again, but there's a possibility. I mean, our, this cosmos is what, 13 billion years or 14 billion years, and it's, somebody figured it's only going to go another 60 billion or something before, you know, I mean, who knows what, you know, just repetitive, what's repetitive is not necessarily a thing, it just is a habitual repetitive pattern. So to bring our Dharma focus to the phenomenology of our experience, which includes our intentions, which includes our understandings, and to recognize the difference between understandings that are based in our experience and ones that are based in our wishes. And I think I think the Buddha suggested that a lot of the metaphysical conjecture are our projections of our desires. So we don't want to die. So we create what a friend of mine calls the immortality project. We 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 imagine heaven or future lives. You know, whether uh, not making a claim about whether they exist or not, just noticing how they we want the world to be just. Ken Lay died just before he was indicted. He, you know, was the head of Enron. Did he get away scot free? Well, either Saint Peter or the laws of karma are going to get him. It makes us feel better. <laughs> But in any case, just thinking about that is not, you know, I mean, we want to be comforted. We want to be consoled. But it wasn't so much into that. The consolation was to find our way through the Brahma-viharas, through the the divine states, through the, the psychological states of an awakened being, and to find our life in them, in them. And then our karma and our our behavior um, will not make things worse for ourselves and others, will not enhance dukkha, enhance suffering, will attenuate it. And the way to find this, of course, is within each of us. Each of us has to do it ourselves. It's not something that's contained in a fundamentalist way in, a, in, in scripture. So I wanted to just bring this, this fact to our attention, just to, to reflect on it for a bit. Um, now this, the scriptural tools are helpful, but sometimes you can read in them and just say, I don't know. Fake Buddha quotes. So let me just uh, have a few minutes for questions or comments or complaints, even. <laughs> Please. You're uh, talking about the the chaff in the canon. Uh huh. Um, another large religious organization, which is 
currently burning little pieces of paper and trying to find an infallible person, has in the past um, purged things and changed things mm -hmm. in the canon. Is, is there any reason to consider that? And there's some things which are obviously, and perhaps not. Um, We're looking for help and for guidance. No, I think sometimes a lot of the static that has crept in muddies things. You know, it's not so much that we don't want to wake up, it's that there's confusion about how to do it. It's also not, not so easy. Uh, Buddha said it's, it goes against the flow. So everybody says, go with the flow. Yeah, you know, is the the uh, Dharma punks have these this great shirt that says against the flow. You know, it's against if it feels good, do it. You know, against that flow. You know. Um, so we, you know, our relationship to our individual relationship to to scriptures is an individual relationship. You know, for us to be engaged in it and in a. A living tradition means for us to engage the tradition, you know. And so I, I don't, I, I just want to point to today to the difference between the metaphysical things that we believe, and that may be comforting and useful. Useful, they can be useful, uh, and and some kinds of uh, our own, and to distinguish it from our own experience. I'm not sure, you know. I think that. Other religious, my take is, for example, that uh, people identify certain kinds of wonderful, beautiful, emotional, spiritual experiences as divine, and those are the things that we, you know, they are, you know, naturally there. If we if we just tune in, there are things that are there, and then, but instead we willfully whatever, and and miss out on. But the good stuff comes and the bad stuff comes and goes. Everything has a time. So I don't, I'm not sure whether that really addresses your question. It's me rambling on a bit, <laughs> which is not unusual. Did you have a question? Yeah, but I think I worked it through. Oh, okay. It was about the issue of, of what the Buddha might mean by the word liberation. Ah. Liberation from the cycle of yeah. Did he claim that this was his last life? And even if he did, what, well, it's, he didn't believe it or not believe it. Right, it's unclear. But it's possible to see rebirth as not necessarily rebirth as reincarnation in another body. You know, I sign you know, a um, mortgage statement and I am reborn as the owner of a house that, oh my God, there's a sinkhole. <laughs> or whatever, you know, we become we become the owners of our karma. We can't escape our karma. We're reborn, you know, according to our karma. Um, so we could also be liberated from... We could be liberated. We, we could be, and you know, what's, what I find interesting is that um, in the early scriptures, uh, the practices of the heart... Um, are on a par with the wisdom practices. The Brahma Viharas, 
are not taken as, um, you know, at the time of the Buddha, if you said, uh, the word, the phrase Brahma Vihara means the abode, the Vihara is where you live, a living place, a dwelling place, a Brahma. If you said at the time, I'm going to abide with Brahma, that meant, that was the highest attainment you could make, you could achieve, to, to abide with Brahma. In, by the time the, uh, the scriptures were consolidated in, in, by Buddhaghosa, that context had sort of been lost. And so now, in the tradition, the understanding is that the Brahma-viharas are great to practice. They'll get you reborn in the Brahma realms. But I was, you know, I, I, have, I have a Kalyanamita group that I meet with every month. We've been meeting now for, oh my gosh, 20 years. And last night somebody suggested that all you need is the metta sutta. That, it, that, you know, that the liberation of the heart and the liberation of the mind are liberation. You don't get one without the other. You, you just, you can't. Mindfulness is different from paying attention. You can pay attention through your sniper scope. The difference between sati, mindfulness, and manasakara, attention, is metta. It's the caring. They're, they're not two separate wings of the dharma. They're totally embedded in each other. It's my take, that's my take. And... So liberation of the heart and liberation of the mind come together. They aren't separate. If you, uh, Sylvia's got a great quote that I just came across recently. My wife came across and flashed it in my face, and it goes something like, um, "I find that I cannot see things clearly as they are without an attitude of benevolence." That's the same thing. That's the same thing. Wasn't it many generations before the words of the Buddha were actually written? Yes. The Buddha died. There's some scholarly dispute, but somewhere in the 5th century, maybe towards the end of the 5th century B.C., they were first written down around the first century BC. The, the most recent physical documents we have are ninth century. So there's. Well, we pl- can't count on any of it actually being what he said. We. I mean, it's a lot of telephone. Well, you know, there's a lot of telephone. <laughs> there's a lot of telephone, but you know, I, I, Richard Gombrich, who was the, um, the president of the Pali Text Society for 20 years and had the Sanskrit seat at Oxford University for God knows how long, he he points out, he says, you know, somebody said this stuff and it probably wasn't a committee. (laughs) You know, so the trick is to be able to read and let it resonate in your own heart-mind and if it sounds a little bit woo-woo, maybe, maybe it is. You know, I, and you can see how it works. 
fake Buddha quotes. Someone, someone who's reciting says, you know, I could clarify this if we just shift this phrase a little bit. And in all that time, I'm not talking about people who are malevolently trying to, you know, wait till the 21st century comes, we'll get those guys, you know, but trying to clarify based on their understanding, you know. Yeah. At the Buddha's time and prior to that, there was, of course, a whole religious variety of religious cultures and so on. It's mm-hmm. happening before he mm-hmm. spoke his wisdom. Um, did they believe in hell? Because I never thought that's that was a gr- part of it. That's a I, great question. I'm I'm not really good at this stuff. My understanding is that the notions of another world showed up in the early Vedas. Um, and the notion of reincarnation was just a few hundred years old at the time of the Buddha. So there were notions of states of deprivation and hells and the hungry ghosts and various Dharma realms which now I think you know, depending on how you count them, there are a few of them or a lot of them, which reminds me of the God is blue, God is red kind of thing. Um, so there there were some notions of the other world and they were evolving and developing uh, at the time. But the the notion of the oneness of all things was... was uh, Relatively recent before the before the Buddha, and it had taken hold. And most of the people who heard the Buddha, that's what that's what they thought. So when the Buddha the Buddha didn't talk about any of that. He was talking about your direct experience. Panya means direct knowing, insight. We translate it as wisdom, which has a slightly different feel. Anything else? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.